Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nish Nikolic and today's guest is Professor Angela Martin. She's here to talk to us about workplace well-being, which I know is a very important and hot topic, particularly with regards to the changing workplace dynamics with COVID and just the amount of change that all of us experience in a long career with organisations being much more adaptable and flexible than they ever have been before. Professor Martin also holds the role of Director of, of Pracademia, where she looks at the applied application of her research with organisations in really looking at an integrated approach to mental health within the workplace. So there are three aspects that we cover in today's conversation. The first one is the prevention of harm. Secondly is promoting the positive in workplaces. And thirdly, how we could actively manage mental health issues and illnesses in the workplace. There's definitely something for everyone in this podcast so listen up and also if you do feel that there's value for others please share because I think Angela's got some really interesting and incredible insights that we could all benefit from. Angela big thank you for coming on to the show today. Oh no problem Nesh it's nice to meet you. Look I'm excited to talk to you about uh, you know workplace well-being it's something that I'm passionate about in my practice uh, here in Canberra you know I know that we spend way too much time at work I think anyway um, but it's it, it's something that uh, you know we all have to get used to um, we don't have the luxury of, of doing you know two days three days or whatever it might be so with that in mind I'm, I'm interested to find out about uh, the research that you've done and, and obviously your experience in, in in space of you know well-being but within the workplace, because I think you know, we, we, we spend a large portion of our lives uh, you know, away from our family and friends and you know, more rather with, with our work colleagues. And you know, hopefully we've got good friends there as well. Um, but it's a, it's a real interesting topic for, for me. So really looking forward to, to today. Yeah, great. Thanks. I think everyone um, is increasingly interested in this topic. Uh, I think it's one of the things that's been building in prominence really um, in society for about the last 10 years but just post-COVID and you know still going on for many people around the world um, including our poor old Victorian friends uh, yeah just the issue of mental health and how it interacts with work you know both in a positive and a negative way so I've been working in this area uh, for at least 10 years now. Uh, I started off my research career looking at how people adjust to organisational change in the workplace, but now it's kind of much more like just constant change. It used to be um, studying a change program or something that was being introduced in a sort of discrete way and how that could be adopted more by employees without creating too much stress. But now the change is just constant. So um, I started to move into more the areas around um, some of the negative impacts of work on mental health, particularly conditions that are common and some of them that are increasing in prevalence. So things like depression and anxiety, uh, so those sort of more clinical outcomes. But, you know, I've always been really interested in also um, what we might call um, subclinical distress that can 
um, occur through things that happen to us at work and in our working lives. So I've gone quite broad in the last five years in particular, um, looking at what is known at the moment as an integrated approach to workplace mental health. And that's really looking at three things in particular. So these are the three areas that I talk to organisations about and um, they're my areas of passion because I think all three are important. So the first one and I guess the principal um, sort of area is what we call prevent harm and that's all of the stuff around having a safe workplace. And I think what we've seen is even though in the legislation of work health and safety it says this includes psychological health, that, you know, you need to be safe and prevent injuries to psychological health, it has been kind of a bit in the, the hard basket for many employers. So that I, I can talk more about each of these areas, but just to introduce um, the sure. framework that, that I use, that's prevent harm. It's mainly about safety and occupational health. Then you've got promoting the positive, which is all about mental health promotion, because mental health is supposed to be a, a positive concept. To be mentally healthy means that you're able to, to deal with the stresses that come up uh, in life and at work, um, and that you actually can you know, benefit from having a job, having interactions with people, the social connections, all of that really good stuff out of positive psychology, but applied to the domain of work and to having an organisation that's got a positive culture that actually helps keep us well. Then the third area, obviously, with increasing recognition of mental disorders in society. And um, as I said, that sort of you know, they may not be diagnosed with a disorder, but they are experiencing distress. Um, I know you've had Michael Leader come on and talk about burnout as, as one example of, um, you know, damage psychologically that occurs to us from work. So the third area is to actively manage mental health and mental illness. And there we're looking at all of the sort of HR procedures around uh, reasonable accommodations for people that might be undergoing some treatment or having, um, you know, just some, some issues that they need to be part-time for a little while and things like that. But it also includes having conversations around distress and mental distress and promoting help-seeking, getting people to the right kinds of help um, and just being supportive of people who are trying to continue working whilst they're also experiencing a mental health condition. So a lot of the work that I do in that area um, is around how managers and leaders can create an environment that's, um, you know, low in stigma and that so that mental uh, ill health is treated in the same way as physical ill health. Yeah, so that's the framework. It covers all those areas and I think... You know, we see a lot of emphasis in workplaces now, maybe on the third area, you know, get, get things like Are You OK Day and um, things like mental health first aid courses. And, you know, that's starting to get integrated quite a bit in workplaces from the, the sort of ethical perspective of, of looking after people and supporting them um, in recovery. It might also include... Um, processes around returning to work when there's been a long-term absence um, and how, you know, we can make it, again, less um, stigmatised than returning to work after a physical injury. So, yeah, those are um, the areas that we are seeing kind of quite broad take up of some of the messaging. Why do you uh, think yeah. that there's an emphasis there? Is, is that an easier place to for organisations to go to where you can run yeah. campaigns, you can do awareness, yes. um, you, you know, can, can just put in policies uh, around, you know, if someone's feeling unwell, they can, you know, go and, and you know, uh, um, activate an EAP sort of resource and get some, you know, counselling. Is, is that kind of the sort of naturally easiest place for yeah. workplaces to, to kind of gravitate toward? Yeah, I think it is. Um, and also from often a well-meaning, as I said, sort of humanitarian um, view or, you know, you might get 
um, leaders that have had personal experiences with mental ill health either themselves or in their family and they they care about people so they want to do something and it is well intentioned um, but in many cases it's inadequate because there's not a focus on prevention and I think that's for a couple of reasons. Um, in my experience it can be just due to a, a lack of knowledge and understanding about what the legal um, responsibilities are to be compliant so we can talk about that a bit more. Um, sometimes it is that it's too hard because having to look at prevention you know can require a particular effort because you need to do a bit of research you know to find out what the main factors are for your staff where you can mitigate those sort of risks or not you know I've done a bit of work in first responders you know so a police officer for example you can't eliminate the risk of violence or you know the risk of seeing a potentially traumatic situation um, but you can intervene around all of the operational and organizational factors that that sit around the people doing that work so um, yeah, there's a there's a knowledge bit. There's um, a difficulty. What does, um, if if you don't mind me just jumping yeah. in, in a scenario like that, because sometimes it's easier to workshop an idea. Uh, what does it mean to uh, having a safe workplace in in? Um, what what does that mean? And obviously, in policing, we're not really talking about safety from harm. Uh, because as a police officer, your job is to put yourself in potentially harmful environments yes. where, you know, you might be um, you know, physically hurt or threatened. Um, you know, uh, there, there's lots of sort of, you know, challenges there. But what does it mean to be um, you know, in a safe workplace? How, how might that be shaped in, in the context of you know, a police force? Yep. Okay, so um, in terms of the compliance with legislation for what a safe workplace looks like, at the moment the guidance is um, that you need to assess and control what they call psychosocial risks to mental health. So um, those factors vary in different occupations and settings, but there are some sort of agreed upon um, common factors that, you know, will come up in almost all work settings. And um, these include, you know, sort of stuff out of the literature from the last 40 years of things like um, workload and demands, um, the amount of control people feel they have over how they respond to those demands. It can include the supportive relationship with a supervisor and the quality of that relationship. Um, it can include things like having a clear role and knowing how to perform the role well. There's a whole range of factors. I think in the if people are really interested in this, they can have a look at Safe Work Australia's guidelines on psychosocial factors in the workplace. But the expectation is that you you should, as an employer, be doing something to assess those what those risk factors are or what the pattern is like for your organization and if you have a very big and complex organization you know, you'll see a lot of variability mm. um, in the patterns of risk factors because um, they're really then, they're really yeah. tricky sort of spaces when 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 i look at them because how do we measure uh, for example you know the uh, you know, workload and demands. That's that. That's clearly going to be a common one that comes up for, yes. for uh, you know, for people where there's going to be a feeling of you know, un, uh, unacceptable demands or, or yes. unrealistic, you know, demands or you know, the classic one that I think all psychologists here around Australia is you know, not enough resourcing. Everyone yes. talks about about that. It's like you know, and sometimes that can be not enough resourcing to achieve even the ideal that someone is, is, is striving for, which can be stressful for them. Uh, and mm. so there's, there's almost like a, a you know, competing demands and, and, and kind of saying, you know, how do we make it safe? Because uh, part of that in, in some sense is the organisation and, and I'm also kind of hearing that part of that is also about how uh, each individual uh, tries to, 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 
um, understand it themselves in terms of what what their roles and responsibilities are is it is it you're trying to achieve a certain threshold in their work a certain quality because i know that high in conscientiousness often makes people feel high stress high stress um perfectionism high functioning anxiety as well um so yeah you're right there is always an interaction between the the person and the environment and so you know I always talk about workplace mental health as as a shared responsibility of the person and the organization where i think you know it's not cool is where all of that responsibility is put onto individuals and the organization yeah. is not taking any responsibility so just get more resilient go and work on your uh, mindfulness skills yeah, and, dismissive you know, being dismissed yeah yeah you just need to cope more or you know find a different job that isn't so stressful for you or you know so um going back to your original point about how to measure it um, obviously it is complex because even the word psychosocial, which puts a lot of people off because it, to the average person that's a mouthful, right? But what it actually means is that interaction between a person's perception and their social environment. So it's how the individual interacts with those conditions around them. And that, of course, varies for every person with a whole range of things like people's um, personality, their coping styles, their you know, socioeconomic background, the supports around them, what's their family life like, you know, all of these things can, um, you know, interact with how they view their world of work. So it is complex and I think that's why it's considered maybe too hard by some employers. Um, But as you said as well about resources, again, that's why going back to what we were talking about with um, it's a bit easier to have a mental health first aid course on that people can go to than it is to actually start tackling some of those complex issues around workload management um, and you know what's a reasonable again going back to the legislation it asks employers to take reasonable steps to assess con- and control and and sometimes the control um, can eliminate the source of stress but most of the time it's more about what they call mitigation so it's trying to reduce the potential for that thing to harm someone. Um, and again, when we're talking about psychological harm, as you know, as a clinical psychologist, you know, that can occur over quite a period of time, years, in fact, or it can be acute in response to a specific situation, you know, that someone's experienced either potential trauma or perceptions of feeling bullied in the workplace or you know a whole range of sort of critical incidents Mm. or it can just be a process of wear and tear if you like on on the brain over time Um, and you can't point to any specific issue but you have just been um you've just become burnt out and damaged uh yeah Yeah, that, that that makes sense as well because i i i can see the uh the natural bias that management would go to towards saying let's put on a course for let's say resilience or mental health awareness or um, you know um, managing your stress mindfulness whatever it might be because I can I can actively then tick the box and say that's being provided it's very hard to tick a box to say what we've done is we've had supportive conversations Mm. Uh, which I know that's obviously part of what what, what you, you're mentioning as well. You know, there's, the, the, it's really about the quality of the relationship with the supervisor or a manager, but mm. that doesn't seem to kind of fit in a tick box. It, it yes. it's almost like that becomes a formal thing, um, and at that point, it might even be scary rather than just saying, "Oh no, I met with you know uh, my my um, a colleague and we went for coffee and we chatted about." you know, the difficulties that they're facing, whether it be in the workplace or whether it be, you know, in their personal life combined, you know, the complexities. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really have a box to be ticked. Uh, no. Uh, not yet anyway. Yeah, you're right. And um, I guess that's a problem that uh, a whole heap of people around the world actually have been working on. And that's about, you know, different ways of assessing psychosocial risks. And, um In Australia at the moment, all of the regulators are heavily promoting a survey called People at Work, uh, 
And that's a free resource. Um, people can just, you know, Google people at work and um, they can implement that survey with their employees and get some feedback and some benchmarks about on the whole. So, you know, it talks about you, all of your employees and what risks factors are sort of highly endorsed um, by, you know, a reasonable proportion of staff. And they're the ones that you want to start to tackle first. You know, if you've got 60% of your staff saying, my workload is not manageable, um, you know, it's not achievable, then you need to do something about that because otherwise you're uh, just disregarding um, the evidence from your employees. So, you know, the only ways to assess it is formally through something like a survey or even for because I do a lot of work with smaller businesses because some of that can be quite onerous if you don't even have a safety manager or an HR manager. You know, a lot of small businesses do everything. So um, you can informally have a culture and regular practices to try to determine what those risks that multiple employees are bringing up um, look like. So even in staff meetings, you know, you can have a question every month that you're just asking people, so what's been stressing you out of late that's in the workplace domain that we might be able to do something about? You know, just even very simple practices like that that then become a normal part of the culture. I have a, a colleague who always tells this example of working in this window frames company. And what they would do is, um, you know, have just regular conversations about the schedule of production and things like that. And they would work out um, with their rostering, you know, having enough staff on for peak periods or covering for someone who's away, because that's another factor that happens a lot is when people are absent, they don't get replaced or people don't want to take leave because the work builds up while they're away and then they feel more stressed when they come back. So they actually just worked on that one factor, which was production schedule, peaks and troughs and, you know, um, just figuring out amongst themselves how to better manage that. So, you know, that's just one example. It could be in some workplaces um, it's more the the social environment that is toxic, so-called, to people, you know, high competitive cultures, um, what's called incivility or, you know, rude behaviours, um, you know, that could constitute bullying but a lot of the time maybe are just rudeness and incivility. Um, so then you have to look at things like code of conduct and actually holding people accountable for poor disrespectful behaviour in the workplace, like actually addressing it with people, providing them with opportunities to change their behaviour and then ultimately if they don't take those opportunities and you don't see change in behaviour, um, don't keep rewarding a person who is causing damage to everyone around them um, with their poor behaviour. So keep people accountable even if they're um, in the higher levels of the organisation because it's just going to mean that you're losing staff, you're losing productivity, you're turning people over just because of this one person that you're hanging on to for some reason. Let me play devil's advocate. Um, that's you know, part, part of uh, this conversation as well. How do we go about doing that? It, it, it seems to me like uh, there is a culture of acceptance around you know, um, uh, a certain number of people uh, being consistently, um, uh, uh, if I could just use the word rude. Um, yeah, you know, that's and, what I and, Abrasive. And, or, uh, but it's, it, yeah. it, it, it's interesting because I, I could also kind of consider if I observed, for example, my parents who are um, migrants, you know, part of their language and part of their culture is to be a bit more direct. And when you don't have the grasp of the English language as well, uh, trying to just converse might be more more direct. And obviously, Australia is incredibly multicultural, and there's uh, lots of different um, you know, shapes and sizes and cultures. How do we do that while still being sensitive to? how human beings are you know where, where's this threshold to kind of say 
hey, that's just coming across rude or it's being perceived as rude, you, you know, it's perceived rude part of the conversation or do we then get into a slippery slope of, you know, my goodness, I've got to walk on eggshells around everyone because I could potentially, you know, inadvertently mm. upset someone. How That's a real sort of hard, hard space. How do we, how do we address these? Well, is there, yeah. is there um, uh, resources or are there any, you know, tips or ideas? What, what, what do managers um, do yeah. or even colleagues how do we do it without with our own colleagues to, to try and begin to make a you know bit of a uh, an inroad into some of those areas yeah really great point um, and it is incredibly a complex issue as you say because there's all sorts of reasons why people may be behaving in a way that's perceived as rude I think you know fundamentally you can um, look at the issue of behaviour when you induct people into the role. You know, I think most organisations should have some kind of code of conduct. Even if it's a small business, it might just be, you know, a general policy um, for the organisation about um, what's considered reasonable behaviour in the workplace. So actually making sure people know that it's part of their role when they come in um, and why they need to know why that it's not about as you said witch hunting um, or anything like that it's just about what you say is a standard of behavior that helps our workplace um, to function in a respectful way so that no one goes home you know feeling super upset about how someone treated them at work today it can be just as simple as that and so it's setting an expectation. And then, you know, we all have ways of looking at how people are performing in their job, whether, again, they're formal or informal processes, giving feedback. So, again, we set up that expectation about um, how we handle feedback, you know, that it's a two-way process. You're working for me. I can give you some feedback and I'm not going to do that in a way that's intending to um make you feel bad i'm going to give it to you in a way that's constructive that can help you to improve um and that includes your behavior it's you know especially in service roles and things like that where you know it's so important those little interpersonal transactions that we have with people um, and we have norms about what we um, consider acceptable behavior in society civil civil behaviour. Now, different cultural backgrounds provides another layer of complexity to that. Um, but again, just as we manage diversity in the workplace around, you know, other uh, factors, behaviour can still, you can still have that conversation about um, things like what's direct communication versus a softer approach. So, you know, you're not going to get everyone it's not realistic to think that everyone's going to get a training and become this perfect person it's about um, processes for letting people know that it's important letting people know that um, there might be feedback given about behavior um, and that it is a part of many job roles that when you're interacting with people you got to think about um, the impacts of those interactions. So even just a bit of standard setting, um, obviously bullying is something that is regulated um, because it has been shown by research to be one of those factors that can actually lead to developing a, a mental health disorder and it's a risk for suicide. So workplace bullying has its own definition and that's the other thing that as a safe workplace, everyone should know that definition and everyone should know what to do if they feel someone is um, subjecting them to bullying. And that what's can the, be really what's hard. The yeah. bullying definition yeah. um, that's kind yeah. of uh, broadly um, adopted. Uh, interestingly, I don't, I, I don't even know it myself. I, I imagine yeah. if anyone in their own mind, you know, other than those in, in, in the know, think about that like you know what what is it what's defined i know that in psychology we'll, we'll often talk with clients about you know what abuse might look like and and, and try and you know uh, appreciate what you know coercive you know behavior might might uh, yeah. you know, entail and the like and you know clients might not be aware of it you know similarly what what's bullying 
Yes, well, the simple definition um, relates to the intent to um, sort of belittle or humiliate or the, the purposeful intent is part of it. And the other part of it is that it's repeated. Um, so, you know, a one-off argument with someone is not usually bullying. It, when it's a pattern that can be shown over time that includes different behaviours, um, you know, then you can probably establish some grounds for it. So there's actually this thing called the negative acts questionnaire that has 21 different types of behaviour that could be considered bullying. It's not, um, you know, definitive and diagnostic or anything like that because actually it ends up becoming part of a workers' compensation process to determine um, if it occurred and, you know, if it um, is compensable as an injury. Um, so, and that process is quite prescribed. It, so people can look up workplace bullying legislation in their state, for example. Um, but I think if you just start simple by making sure people know what it is, people are told that it's not going to be acceptable, they're told what the processes will be if it occurs, you know, mediation, etc., um, through to disciplinary action or dismissal in severe cases. So um, those are the sort of practices, I guess, that can help but you know it's very complex because you know again a lot of the time it says what um bullying is not so a lot of the training and things we talk to um people about what's reasonable management action versus bullying and it comes back again to what you were saying about abuse that there's there is an abusive component uh to to workplace bullying and you know yeah some personality disorder related stuff around um you know manipulation um yeah and people who have experienced it um are, are quite likely to have those impacts that you would have from an abusive relationship but it's just an abusive relationship in the workplace and not at home mm. so yeah i was just really about to to reference in in actual fact what what that might look like in you know from a gottman um you know model of therapy with with relationships uh, there's there's an aspect or a, or a factor called negative sentiment override uh, and uh, it, there's a blurry sort of space between what is potentially bullying or what is uh, how what has intent and how it's perceived uh, and i suppose that's where the great complexity occurs yeah. and, and and why there is conflict you know because there could be you know, uh, it's kind of a really easy, my apologies, it's really easy to see when bullying is um, outwardly demonstrated. Everyone can kind of see it, but this this kind of harder space is whether it might be belittling or, mm. um, you know, not providing someone with information that might, might you know, have uh, been, um, you know, previously in the loop or, um, you know, there's undermining that's going on. These are much, much, much harder sort of spaces. And I know that you know, from a Gottman model perspective, there can be uh, a perceived sort of space that occurs from a negative sentiment. So, you know, the sort of the, the comical side might be where, you know, someone walks into the office and, and, you know, their colleague says, good morning. But what they hear is like this kind of good morning. Yeah. Like a, like an exasperated, you know, look at the time, you know, you're running late and, it's interesting because sometimes that's exactly how it is said uh, and, and other times that's how it's kind of interpreted. But uh, it's a real sticky and, and slippery slope once, you, once someone's on that because, you know, our natural human factors, you know, kick in where we're feeling under threat. Um, and so we're, we're looking for, uh, I suppose, evidence to, to, to demonstrate that because we've got to defend against that you know it's yeah. it must be so awful for people who feel and and all and people who are being uh, actively bullied um you know with that intent that that would just be like that would oh, destroy yeah. someone's that's mental it, health that's quickly. why it's singled out as a specific risk factor a little bit like um you know 
trauma and those sorts of issues are kind of the the ones that are easy to point to of of course that's going to you know um, create issues for people's psychological health but interestingly too the Scandinavians who first started doing this work about bullying in their research they call it mobbing and they have a group element to it um, as well so we you know it can be individual based but sometimes there's a group element uh, to it also that can make it very difficult for people to stand up or to put their hand negatively and I'm feeling upset about this behaviour, um, if it's a group of people, you know, you can imagine and you're on the outer, you're ostracised or excluded, um, they're our basic human needs to feel belonging in a group of some type. So, um, you know, there's that element as well that makes it more complex. You've got the power dynamics that, you know, what if it's your supervisor that's being abusive and if you're in a larger organisation, there should be a clear process for how you can get support with, with that particular situation. Um, but, you know, that makes it hard, right? You know, if you're in an insecure job, you don't want to lose your income, you know, you know, this yeah, is trapped, um, feel stuck. Can be diabolical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's a really important one. And there's no easy answer to any of this. You know, at the moment in the research, there's an effort into looking at what sort of interventions work to prevent bullying. But it's certainly not at the state where we would say, here's a clear evidence-based intervention to um, reduce or eliminate bullying. So at the moment, we've got a range of tools. But uh, as I was talking about, I think expectations, um, accountability, you know, those sorts of things, um, clear processes for when it happens. And, you know, we've seen heaps on sexual harassment as another form of, you know, psychological injury that can happen to people in their workplace. You know, there's some specific issues there, but, you know, similarly, it's about setting expectations, looking at is there something in the culture that is, um, failing to suppress those behaviours or actually encouraging them. Um, so, yeah, depending on the size of the organisation, there can be cultural aspects to those behaviours as well um, through socialisation and what people see others getting away with and, and that kind of thing. Um, so that's most another people, one. Yeah, most people have at least a general awareness uh, and certainly probably more so in the larger organisations about where they can go to you know, raise concerns or, um, you know, report bullying. You know, there's often formal, there's informal ways. My question is what, what can someone do if we put those, those uh, aside, which you know, in, in theory are supposed to go out and manage and control you know, to moderate the bullying behaviour or the mobbing, so, so to speak. Mm -hmm. What can an individual do if they find themselves in that space where despite their best efforts and, and they've gone to their various um, uh, superiors for, for support or to report it, how do they best, you know, uh, I don't know if the right word is, you know, survive or manage or, mm -hmm. or, or live through mm -hmm. or... or um, you know, uh, strengthen themselves during that time. What 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 can an individual do? And I'm certainly not suggesting this is you know uh, for the individual to do, um, and that we need to just tolerate it. But there are situations where there are individuals who don't have uh, means, and yes. they have gone through all the the, 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 the different um, avenues for mm -hmm. trying to make something stop. What can they do? Yeah, well, um, I think the first point that I want to make is that the first time a behaviour occurs is the best time to address it. So, you know, a lot of times we just let things slide, you know, until they get worse and then you're a bit stuck. So if you are able to think about um, assertive communication to, you know, um, 
have a conversation with somebody whose behaviour you found offensive or hurtful or disrespectful. Um, and so sometimes people might need a bit of coaching on how to have that sort of difficult conversation of addressing somebody's behaviour. And, you know, that's a really good use of something like employee assistance program is maybe role-playing how they might have a conversation like that with someone and get in early and say, you know, I've had an experience like this myself when I first started in a new role. Um, it's a very long time ago now. But um, I was a subject of a bit of kind of hurtful gossip and... I thought about it and I thought, you know, I'm new to this workplace, but I want to stay here. Um, I'm going to have to work with this person. So I just went and said, would it be all right to come and have a, a personal chat with you for 10 minutes? Um, we'll grab a coffee. And I just said to the guy, look, you know, I've had some feedback that you've said these things about me. Um, and I just want to let you know that, number one, those things aren't true. And number two, I would rather you directly speak to me about concerns that you have, you know, than sort of talk to other people about it. I want to have a good working relationship with all my colleagues. And I'm telling you now, I'm not trying to be difficult, but I'm just saying, basically just saying I'm onto it. <laughs> um, and being still really nice about it. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but, you know, that can undermine uh, particularly women in the workplace and just, um, you know, I'd really appreciate it if you just talk to me directly instead of about me. Um, how, and how it never happens again. Nervous? Were you nervous? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, nervous. But also I guess to, um, you know, I'm in a position where, you know, I've invested a lot in my education and, um, I, I value my my contribution to wherever I'm working, and so maybe you know I'm a bit more empowered, that, and I've been trained in psychology and things like that. So, you know, it's a bit easier for me than many other people. But I'm just giving that example just to show that get in early before you know because sometimes bullies looking for a target that they can um, impact you know, without um, getting any kickback. So firstly, that sort of stand up for yourself, but in a way, not in a retaliatory way, that's going to also be disrespectful because then you're just going to get into this not a healthy cycle. So that I would say that if you can address it early, but maybe it's been already going on for years and you've had no luck in resolving it. And, you know, and sometimes, unfortunately, that's when people need to change their work environment. So, you know, it's like this staying in an abusive relationship, you know. There comes a point where you've got to leave. Yeah, that's right. And some cases are like that, um, unfortunately. But everything in between kind of getting in early and saying I'm not going to be your target um, or bystander stuff as well. Sometimes we as colleagues might see behaviour that we don't think is... Um, you know, respectful, healthy, safe for someone. And if we're a bit more empowered in that situation as a bystander, we can also step in to support that person but still communicating to the person, we see this behaviour, we don't think it's um, in line with how human beings should interact with each other at work, it's not respectful, stop doing it. And then sometimes you have to escalate. And that's what I was saying is what's really frustrating is when someone's got an HR file 10 pages long where people have reported incidents about them, but the senior leaders won't take that person on and, and put them into performance management around their behaviour. So um, I think also leaders really have to step up on this. You know, thinking about all of your employees doing a good job for you, it's not productive uh, you know, even if you just think about it in a financial way and not a moral way, you know, lost productivity from conflict, bullying, disrespect, harassment, all these things, there's a big financial cost to it and there's a risk that you might end up in the papers in a legal case damaging the brand of your company. Um, so, you know, the leaders really have to step up with this sort of zero tolerance kind of messages 
and sometimes um, it has to be making someone accountable and and setting that example because otherwise people know nothing really happens. You go and you complain, tell HR, and they get a note on their file and nothing happens. Sure. And that's you know, yeah. I like your approach though in terms of having a multiple prong approach where in the first instance in, and try to make it as soon as possible to the event of calling the behaviour out, not in a rude way, but rather no. kind of saying, you know, I noted that and I want you to understand that I noted that and that's not acceptable. Um, yeah. the, the language might be something a lot more gentle though, like what you said, let's go get a coffee, you know, when you made that comment, you know, it made me feel like this um, yes. and, you know, I don't want to feel like that in the workplace. You know, I, I understand that it might not have been your intent. You know, we give caveats so exactly. that people save face and, 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 and we exactly. keep it nice and gentle. But, you know, as we go, you know, further down, we might have to be a little bit more direct and call it out and give more more uh, direct feedback to kind of say you're on notice and yeah. this isn't okay and, this might escalate if, if bad behaviour continues. Obviously, you know, stepping it up would be going through to HR or, you know, senior leadership and the like. But I also love what you say is, is we can all hang on to idealism and, and kind of say, you know, every, everything should work out that way and we've got processes that, that look after it. But the facts are that's not how life is and there is a time uh, where it's actually beneficial for people to to say, I'm leaving, um, you know, for my mental health, for my well-being, for, yeah. you know, maybe for my my family or for my lifestyle yeah. or, you know, for my sleep, for my anxiety, whatever it might be that it's causing, uh, mm. that that is, you know, a really appropriate way to to adapt, you know, to rather than sitting there and, you know, in theory having to manage my own anxiety when, you know, under those conditions everyone's going to feel you know, stressed and yeah. awful and, and, you know, in, in a threat response. So uh, I like, I, I like what you said there. I, I think it's really uh, uh, powerful, really, really wise Thanks. and powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously a lot of the work that you do as well for people out there, maybe who have experienced this and haven't dealt with it and, and they know it's an issue, you know, if you are able to access some clinical support, because, you know, processing what's happened to you and trying to reduce the harm, um, you know, on your psychological health is also really important, and especially if it has been going on for a period of time. Um, I would also consider, you know, just speak to your GP and say I'm having a, a lot of issues and problems at work that are affecting me mentally, get a mental health care plan and and go and seek some support from a psychologist in in ways of dealing with it or thinking about a long-term plan to move out of that um, exposure, you know. Um, yeah. Looking at Angel, I want to also touch on, because I think they, these are kind of leading uh, very much into... Uh, some of the safeguards might be around promoting the positive, you know, in yes. part of, you know, uh, having a feedback loop is to get people to be aware or going to HR. Yeah, there, there, there's the need for that conversation. And because sometimes uh, a course might help people because they do go to, um, you know, communication course and, and they do some reflection. They go, wow, I can do this better. And I, you know, do want to be mm. better. Uh, manager or colleague whatever it might be and they improve um but i'm interested to find out a little bit more about you know what 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 does this you know positive sort of uh, promotion of the positive uh, mean um because i'm I'm a big advocate of of work um it's probably um my bias because i like to work and um you know do lots of hours but i think there's so many good things that come out of it and and not even from a paid employment from from any any um, volunteering or yeah, yeah, anything, you know, having an objective or something to follow. Yeah. Um, well, How you do know, workplaces work, do this and individuals as well. How do we all do it? Yeah. So I think the, the at the sort of broadest level, it's about having a positive organizational culture and, and, you know, with values at the heart of the culture. And, you know, depending on what organization and what its mission is you know those values will be different but a lot of um, people start at that organizational level of articulating the values 
positive values, um, you know, that guide all of our behaviour in delivering our service or whatever it is. Um, and probably the next level down is then thinking about your managers and your, your line managers, your supervisors, um, getting that concept about uh, what I said earlier about a positive, supportive relationship with employees, not a uh, master and servant relationship, but a, um, a genuine human relationship um, where there's mutual goals and objectives being pursued at the same time and um, making sure the leaders and managers, you know, know those basics about what human needs are. So needs for affiliation, belonging, social connection, you know, mm -hmm. how important that is to have ways of, um, you know, managing diversity and inclusion, I guess what that's called um, broadly. But um, so, so that's part of it. And then it's to the work group level, your daily colleagues as well, thinking about how you support each other through difficult days at work or difficult tasks or projects, um, that whole concept of social support. Like that's one of the biggest benefits to us uh, of having a job and a workplace is having an identity outside of our family um, or outside of what else we like to do when we're not working and um, to, yeah, just to feel valued uh, as a human being. I think they're just really fundamental. The other one is um, things around appreciation. And so, as you know, I talked about the fact of setting up expectations that you might get constructive feedback on your job performance. But what people often forget is to do the, um, the praise, the acknowledgement, the, you know, rewards because um, uh, one of the big theories in this area is the effort reward imbalance theory of depression you know that people put in a lot of effort and don't get a lot of reward and whether that's financial social um, feedback from clients whatever that is um, it's important to all of us to have a nice balance between our efforts and rewards and sometimes people forget the reward side and the positive side and just only focus on efforts so there's some quite simple things in that domain. There's also some um, stuff about what um, we've done some research on in our group is a concept called psychological capital. I don't know if you've heard of that before, no, no. but it's, you know, we say there's financial capital that a business has to invest and uh, make profit. There's social capital that's all about our networks and how we use those um, to meet our objectives. And psychological capital um, can be the property of an individual or a group. And it's how we, um, you know, respond to challenges. So it includes resilience, self-efficacy and hope and optimism. And so we, we do some training to help people understand how those four factors can be used to manage challenges and to develop our some people might call it mental fitness, you know. Um, so there is a place for resilience, but I hate it when that's the only thing on offer. Mm. Um, yeah, so... It almost becomes binary in, in, in this conversation of it's one or the other versus, you know, it's kind of like the master and the slave versus the team, you know, that there's a collective yeah. uh, reason why we're all going to, to work and what we're trying to achieve, you know, versus a, you know, authority and a, you know, submissive person. It, yeah. it's, it's kind of like, you know, that, that whole dynamic is, is awful and that's where, you know, the, the feelings of bullying and, and the experience of bullying and, and, and how it actually begins to occur um, mm. is a power dynamic, um, mm. you know, that, that, that occurs and, you know, to be assertive kind of at least balances that you know parts of that back up um mm. uh, and even you know to, to to the to the point of you know potentially asserting oneself if nothing else is working and, and to leave mm. um mm. you know because you know that that on occasions you know is is a wise way to yeah. go um, yeah. but I, I really like that um you know psychological capital yeah, yeah, I think concept. it's... A, how, how do you do that as a group? What, what, yes. what does that look so like? So we've shown in our research that over time, you know, when teams work together, they develop kind of a shared mindset about 
how they approach challenges and how they work as a group and a team. Um, like not everyone works in those very interdependent teams, but when they do, you can have this kind of through a process of almost emotional contagion and modelling and these kinds of processes and you setting sort of norms as a, as a team about how you behave, how you support each other, how you manage stress, how you allocate tasks, these kinds of things. When we do the workshops with people, we break down those four elements into they're really just kind of goal-setting, brainstorming um, activities around whatever a challenge a team agrees they want to work on. So it's really important that um, you can do it with individuals where they've got a specific goal that involves some challenging and you break it down, probably similar to what you might do with people in session about how they can use their resources to deal with that problem or um, their personal strengths, how they can leverage their personal strengths to overcome an obstacle, um, how they can plan out different pathways. So if one doesn't work out, they've got several backup options. That's the kind of thing that we do either with individuals or with teams. So one example, we did a process with a team who work in a contact centre, you know, on the phones, insurance and finance industries, and they don't have any sort of workplace wellbeing program, you know, they're on the phones all day, their toilet breaks are timed, all sorts of stuff. And what they wanted to work on was creating more of a sense of a team instead of just being individuals on the phone. So they were brainstorming a lot of activities that they could do to increase their social connection opportunities and um, debriefing opportunities, social things outside of work, even things like they set all these amazing goals where they would have a lunchtime um, where people would share a TED talk that they found useful on workplace wellbeing or something, you know, um, but they took ownership of the the issue and they put strategies in place, even little cool things like they had these little emoticon cards that they would put up on their computer screen if they were having a hard time with something so that people knew to take them off for a break or and have a chat. You know, so some of these things, they don't cost money to do, but they mm. take some time and some energy to, to work through. So that's, that's one example of trying to create a a team psychological capital that we can work on our daily well-being, even if we can't control the stuff of coming at us on the phones. You know, we want to improve this experience of being a team at work. So mm. that's one example. And it's a fantastic uh, example, and I think something that, that that demonstrates when you get people together as as a group, they often. Can can figure out that this you know that that sort of solution themselves. Yeah. I know that yeah. we've spent so much time, I suppose, in, you know, focusing on the research and your academic role. Can you tell us a little bit about your your other role uh, as director of uh, Pracademia? And I'm, I'm assuming this is the sort of work that you do um, uh, in, in in that organisation. Yeah, so um, I founded that about four years ago and um, more recently I've taken on a co-director who's a clinical psychologist and we work in partnership with a, a network of people who are academically trained but who are really passionate about what we would call knowledge translation. Um, so wanting to see more evidence-based practice in workplaces um, particularly in this area because you, there's a really big um, kind of commercial segment now uh, in workplace mental health and not all of it is evidence-informed. <laughs> um, and, you know, so I felt really passionate about providing high-quality consulting services to organisations that want to start to tackle any of these sort of issues that we've talked about. Um, yeah, so that, that, that there's this um, ability to not just be an academic doing research, which, you know, is a value to society in general, but I felt like a lot of what I knew from the research just wasn't being applied in, in any way in reality. Uh, so I was, that's, that's my real passion is um, quality and evidence-informed approaches to these quite complex issues, you know, 
some of this has been called um, a wicked problem, you know, the, the issue about work pressures and um, constant change and, you know, uh, all of the things that we've experienced in our working lives. So um, that's what Pracademia does. We, we get subject matter experts together to um, deliver on whatever client needs are. So they could be, at the moment, we've just done a psychosocial risk assessment using that people at work tool for an organisation that says we're starting from scratch, we just want to know for our employees what are the top issues that we should be um, we should be dealing with. So we did a survey. Um, sometimes it's training. I mentioned how important management training is and leadership training. Sometimes we just do training but we draw in some of these insights from research. Um, other times, you know, we work with a company on putting a, a strategic approach together that really truly is integrated and covers off from the safety side to the HR side and the positive psychology and culture building side. So all sorts of different work, but mm. absolutely love it because you work with people from every occupation and industry. It's totally fascinating um, and really enjoyable. So um, for me, quite that's tailored. split model. Yeah, you know, it's, it's quite tailored, tailored exactly. to each, each organisation. I know that you're in Tasmania. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do, do you work outside of, of Tasmania? Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. I, I, before COVID, I was always on a plane to Melbourne. That was <laughs> where I was um, doing a lot of practice. Um, but I've just completed a really big job for Safe Work New South Wales. They did a, they've got a statewide strategy, which is fantastic, and they wanted some expert advisory on refreshing their strategy and looking at um, any sort of new initiatives that they could put into the market. So anyone who's listening who's in New South Wales, have a look at what's on offer because they're, they're offering um, for small businesses four hours of free psychological uh, support for mentally healthy workplaces so they can pick something that they want to talk about and it's free so that's great there's also a new one coming online with beyond blue called the new access for small business and they have coaches again helping you to work on problems that have an intersection with mental health so there's all sorts of cool stuff starting to be available and because of what's happened with COVID you know small businesses have always been a very stressed segment um, and even more so you know financially stressed um, through disruption so um, make sure um, if people want to find out more about resources and things that they can contact me I'm sort of aware of what's going on in most states um, and also globally really interesting you know, I've followed Canada for a long time and what they've been doing. Uh, this program's now, new standards coming out, all sorts of things. So this is a really live space. Yeah. That's the exciting thing about combining, you know, academia with practical, you know, real-life applications. So, you know, that, that, that to me is what, you know, psychology is all about is, is mm. you know, an evidence-based, you know, therapy or evidence-based application. So it's very exciting sort of, sort of stuff. How can people get in contact if they do want to reach out and contact you? Yes, yeah, so I have a, two web profiles you can search for, the University of Tasmania, just if you Google Angela Martin, University of Tasmania, you'll see my academic profile online. Or if you just Google Pracademia, um, you know, you can contact me if it's more the applied and practical work that you're interested in. So, yeah, please do. If anyone's listening and want to follow up on any of this, please do contact me. I always love to hear from people about what their issues are and, you know, how I might be able to help. That's fantastic. And uh, what's 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 next for for you um, on, on, on a personal sort of, sort of front? It sounds like you've got a lot a lot going on. You must be managing, you know, stress and well being, you know, exceptionally oh, well. Absolutely. Um, and I try to practice what I preach, but as you know, um, when it's doing it to yourself, it can be harder. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things that I really value is about living in Tasmania, like we've lived here for 15 years, the natural environment is just spectacular. We are really into kayaking and there's so many amazing waterways. So try to regularly get out with my husband in the kayak and just soak up some beautiful nature. Um, that whole um, immersion in nature is another area of research which is fascinating um, for mental health. I've got a student working on that issue of um, nature prescription 
um, like getting GPs um, to to talk to their patients about more experience of nature. So that's so interesting. Mm. I tell you what, I'm I love nature so so much as well, and it's it's one of the things that definitely balances me. So mm. when that uh, paper gets released, please uh, keep They'll keep me it. in the link uh, to to send it through. I'd be more than happy to uh, push that around as well because I think right. there's a lot of value in that. There's really yeah. a lot of value. Definitely works for me. Well, Angela, really, really appreciate your time, time today, you know, some incredible insights and I think something that we can all take away, whether it's as, uh, you know, uh, employees, employers, you know, managers in organisations, people in HR, psychologists alike, I think, I think there's, there's a lot to take away and think about and, you know, particularly for ourselves, how we can, um, you know, make our workplace environments more, you know, mentally healthy. So appreciate your time and, and uh, you know, expertise. Thank you so much, Nesh, and keep in touch. Will do. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, If you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.